This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. listeners some of you may know that october is black history month in the uk we are recording this in october though you may be listening in november and fittingly we're going to be talking about a really important figure in black history and particularly black publishing history pauline elizabeth hopkins and she was a black speculative writer playwright journalist historian and editor just a few of the many titles she can lay claim to yes she had a very busy um that's not the right word (laughs) She kept herself very busy. She, she, she had a lot on her plate. <laughs> yes, always doing things. So welcome to episode 23, Pauline Elizabeth Hopkins. Yay, finally. Um, before we dive in, maybe we should take a quick trip around the world in Pauline Elizabeth Hopkins' lifetime. On the 14th of February, 1859, Oregon was admitted as the 33rd state of the Union. On the 4th of July, 1865, the first edition of Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was published. On October 19th, 1870, the first African Americans were elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. There were four of them, and we will provide a link to that tidbit in our show notes. On 13th of November 1875, the National Bowling Association was organised in New York City. On the 30th of September 1880, American amateur astronomer Henry Draper took the first ever photograph of the Orion Nebula. On the 13th of October 1884, Greenwich in London was established as the Universal Time Meridian of Longitude, which I don't want to you know, direct you to exactly where I live, but that's about a mile from where I live. On the 1st of March, 1880, in the first U.S. edition of A Sherlock Holmes Story, A Study in Scarlet, by Arthur Conan Doyle, was published. On the 1st of January, 1896, the German physicist Wilhelm Rudgen announced his discovery of X-rays. On the 20th of June, 1901, Charlotte Max became the first Native African to graduate from a U.S. college. It was Wilberforce University in Ohio. On the 7th of February, 1907, the Mud March took place, and that was the first large procession organized by the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, or NUWSS. On the 11th of January, 1912, the Bread and Roses strike began in Lawrence, Massachusetts, following a pay cut. On the 30th of December 1924, the astronomer Edwin Hubble formally announces the existence of other galactic systems at a meeting of the American Astronomical Society. On the 9th of August 1930, Betty Boop debuted in Max Flesher's animated cartoon, Dizzy Dishes. It's such a, like, there's so much happening during that time period. Like, Betty Boop seems so modern. I know, it's... In a way. 
I know she's older, yeah. but... But yeah, like, I don't know, cartoons in general, it's like technological leaps and bounds, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So with the biography in this episode, we're kind of going to be focusing on Hopkins's early life. Um, and we might go more into her later life when we discuss her writing. But I, and I'm sure you'll agree, Courtney, I wanted to like talk about her early life because the amount of influential black Bostonians that she was related to or knew or interacted with is just incredible. Hmm. So Hopkins was born in 1859 in Portland, Maine, to free parents, and they were Benjamin Northup and Sarah Allen. Um, her father, Benjamin, was a Civil War veteran and a member of the Grand Army of the Republic. That was an organisation for veterans of the Union Army, which was founded by Benjamin Franklin Stevenson. A fun name, just probably getting Benjamin Franklin in there. Um, that was founded in 1866. So at its height of popularity in 1890, it had 400,000 members from 7,000 posts, which I believe means just local groups. Um and actually counted five presidents, so Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Harrison, and McKinley among its members. Um, and this fits really nicely into the theme of the kind of politics that runs through Hopkins's life. It was initially founded as a social group for veterans, but it soon took on a political aspect and eventually became one of the first organised advocacy groups in US politics. And this is according to the Library of Congress's account, quote, the GR became so powerful that the wrath of the entire body could be called down upon any man in public life who objected to GAR-sponsored legislation, unquote, or end quote. And the causes that they supported were broadly progressive. So they were associated with a bill approved by Lincoln in 1862, which granted pensions for soldiers who'd been permanently disabled during their service. Um, they eventually became so powerful that presidential campaigns could be made or broken by the candidate's support for GAR-backed legislation. As well as pensions, the GAR introduced the idea of Memorial Day. Um, and that idea actually came from a member's wife who'd seen Southern women decorating Confederate graves. So it's, again, it's women that are kind of prompting these things and men getting the credit. <laughs> and that all fit with Northup's background. So according to a lot of the research that I did for this came from Lois Brown's um, Black Daughter of the Revolution, which is an incredible biography. And according to her... Benjamin's family was visible and influential in the early 19th century African-American community of Providence, Rhode Island. The Northups lodged eloquent and effective challenges to segregated education and the practice of taxation without representation for people of colour in the state during the antebellum period. Um, and one of his, so a lot of his family members are progressive. Um, one of them, Ichabod, which I wanted to include that because of the time of year, but <laughs> Ichabod Northup, her great uncle, was an outspoken advocate for the rights of black Americans and was particularly passionate about the educational opportunities of children of colour and was visible in the campaign to end slavery. So Pauline Hopkins' mother, Sarah A. Hopkins, was from the Boston area. Uh, Sarah came from a prominent family, the Paul family, in Boston, um, which seems like a, a reasonable source for the name Pauline. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was one of Eleanor's notes. So Hopkins' ancestor, Thomas Paul, was a Baptist minister who was involved in the early days of the New England Anti-Slavery Society, which met in the basement of Paul's African Baptist Church. 
the church he was a minister of was Boston's first black church. Uh, and um, Brown describes the Pauls as, quote, one of the city's most prominent and active antebellum African-American families. Their name was synonymous not only with the Baptist church, but also with campaigns to improve African-American education, to promote cultural expression, and to abolish slavery, end quote. And uh, one of Hopkins, yeah, sorry, um, you cut yes. it. Yes, <laughs> sorry, I did the same because I thought it would be of interest to you. I don't know if you've made the announcement, if anyone's seen Courtney's announcement, but one of Hopkins's ancestors, Thomas Paul Jr., was one of the first black Americans to graduate from Dartmouth. That is really cool. Yeah, um, so I guess maybe I'll just, I don't know if it really belongs here in the middle, but I am in the process of moving to New Hampshire because I am now employed by Dartmouth. I'm going to be a learning designer there, and I am very, very excited. Um, yeah, so well deserved, though. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but if the, if, if there's like a lot of bumping in the background of my audio today, it's because we are like frantically packing because we're we're out of here uh, next next uh, Saturday. Yeah, so um, the last push. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so um, one of Hopkins' ancestors was one of the first Black Americans to graduate from Dartmouth. Um, his sister, Susan, was one of the first women of color to join the New England Anti-Slavery Society. And she was a very accomplished woman. Uh, so to quote Brown, Susan became the family's first published author and was the first African-American woman to publish a biography, the first to chronicle the life of a freeborn child of color, and the first African-American woman to produce a published work of evangelical juvenilia. End quote. Hopkins' maternal ancestors were also integral in the struggle to end segregated education in Boston in the 1840s. Yeah, so her kind of family background is really showing how she came to be interested in what she ends up writing about and shows where she gets, gets some of her fire from, I suppose. Yes, yes. Um, and actually, for you might have noticed that her surname is not the name of her father. It's not Northup, it's Hopkins. Um, she actually initially used her mother's maiden name, which is Alan, as a pen name for many of her published works, and especially the early ones. And her mother, Sarah, filed for divorce from Benjamin in November 1863. And it sounds like he was a very cheeky boy, um, which mm. might be a massive understatement, because Sarah cites in a divorce proceeding adultery with various nude women as her, private, as her primary reason. Um, yeah, maybe I'll cut the bit about him being a cheeky boy because that's a bit irreverent. Um, <laughs> but it seems like despite coming from this, you know, progressive family, Benjamin wasn't actually a very good husband at all to Sarah and she divorced him. It was actually becoming more common for women to file for divorce at the time, so it's not that unusual, but it is still um, relatively rare for a woman of colour to begin the proceedings. So white women were more and more filing. We're actually the filing party in the majority of divorces at the time but that didn't cross race boundaries yeah and i will say um that you know um citing adultery was one of the only ways to successfully sue for divorce um yeah it's an, it's like um adultery cruelty it's essentially adultery yeah. Like, yeah there's yeah there's a fascinating history of like um 
even even when um, those things didn't happen, if a couple really wanted a divorce, sometimes that would be cited um, just to just to pull it off. But particularly yeah. if you're a woman, you have to be able to prove one of those things, sort of extreme mistreatment, abuse, um, or adultery to be able to, to, to get a divorce. Yeah, and the impression I got from Brown's biography is that he was cruel to her and was possibly mm. abusive but it's easier to prove the lewdness and actually he um so she filed for divorce and they printed notices of it i think it was every week for a month they printed notices of it and then when he didn't show up after these notices had been printed she got it in default and she got full custody of pauline wow and it really seems, I mean, it's not surprising, but after this, um, Hopkins really had very little contact with her biological father. Um, yeah, probably because of that. And came to see her stepdad, William Hopkins, as a father figure. And as you may have guessed, took his surname as a teenager. And he seems like he also came from a prominent family and a prominent progressive family and seems like a really supportive stepdad who really bonded with Pauline over their shared love of the arts. So sometime around all of this, um, they moved back to Boston. The divorce is finalized in Boston. Um, and Pauline, as you do when you're young, just kind of has to keep going on with life. So um, she is enrolled in the, the very um, accurately named girls' high school. <laughs> and it's descriptive. It, it does the job. It tells you what to expect. Yeah. So in 1874, um, Pauline Hopkins' skill as a writer kind of first gains recognition when, as a 15-year-old, she receives a prize, first prize, in an essay contest. Um, her essay was titled, Evils of Intemperance and Their Remedy. The prize, which was aimed specifically at Black students, was sponsored by writer William Wells Brown, whose novel Clotel, concerning the fictional enslaved daughters of Thomas Jefferson, is thought to be the first novel written by a Black American. That's interesting that it's called the fictional enslaved daughters, even though he did have literal enslaved daughters. Yeah. Oh, I think, so basically it's a fictionalized version of his enslaved daughters. Okay, okay, okay. But I think it, so it doesn't, I mean, I didn't do a load of research into this, the book, but it seems like it doesn't pretend that He's made up the whole premise of Jefferson having enslaved daughters, but it's kind of, yeah, fictionalizing their experience. Interesting. I want to see if I can track that down. Yeah, the, this is the thing with like all of this is there's so many little rabbit holes to go off on. And yeah. So many interesting other things happening. Yeah. So this novel is also thought to be the first novel written by a black American um, although I will have a, a major caveat, which is that um, there's been a, like a real misconception about how much Black authors were publishing in the 19th century, because one, that sort of scholarship has not always been rewarded by the Academy, and two, um, we live in a racist society, so the literary and cultural productions of yeah. Black Americans have not been valued and in fact have been obscured as much as possible by a variety of mechanisms so um we still don't know as much as we should know about 
who was writing and um yeah yeah it's just infuriating yeah and i'm i'm kind of suspicious of that claim because it's 1853 so that seems really late yeah and like you say it's it might be the first yeah. one that's still remembered but it's almost certainly not the first one i also like want to go back and just kind of question the claim that um that susan um was yeah. the first biography writer um the first black biography writer in the u.s because yeah I don't know. There are all these, there, there are so many narratives written by black women, particularly, um, that I just, yeah, I don't know. There's like Mary Prince, there's, um, Aludo Equiano, um, I don't know. There's, there's a lot going on. Yeah. I don't know that he's really, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I yeah, And the other thing with these kind of things is you don't know how much we're getting into technical definitions of saying, well, Mary Prince and Eduardo Aquiano wrote autobiographies and therefore we're distinguishing them. Yeah. from bi- Or like even with the novel example, is that because we're having a technical argument about what actually constitutes a novel? Yeah. Well, I also think like there's a case to be made that like Nat Turner wrote his own biography even though he dictated it to a journalist like he literally said the whole story and it just got written down by someone else and published by someone else so like yeah but i think yeah i think you're right that is the technalities wait yeah but i also i think you're absolutely right in questioning these claims of something being the first is it really the first is it the first we know about is the, the first that has been given cultural value like there are so many it's difficult to claim that something truly was the first of anything. Yeah. But we can certainly say, like, without trying to undercut either of these authors at all, yeah. that they've made a huge, like, yeah, even if it's considered the first and then later revealed not to be, like, that's still a huge thing to have that sort of visibility and that sort of t- um, kind of status as a touchstone. Absolutely. And for Paul Hopkins to be, you know, surrounded by these people is important yes and another person that she not met but was in the presence of um so i was really intrigued by this one of the i don't think it was browns it was another one that i read which i'll link to the source <clears throat> in the show notes but apparently at some point in the 1870s she went to see frederick Douglass speak and the way she talks about it, it she later wrote Quote, I could listen to the mellow richness of those sonorous accents forever, end quote. And it's all about his rhetoric and how he seems very calm as he's speaking and his kind of, hmm. not political posture, but it's all about the way he delivers these lines or the extract that I read was. That's so fascinating. Yeah, I haven't actually... Like, I think... I don't... Sorry, I haven't actually included it in these notes, but it would be an interesting thing to talk about is... um. I don't know if you've come across Hopkins wrote a series about famous black men or like great black men i think is the i'm trying to remember what the name of the series was something along those lines Hmm. okay i pop in from future eleanor as maybe expected by now i think the reason i was having difficulty remembering is i wasn't sure how to frame phrase this but i'll just use the title that hopkins used so she wrote two series for the colored american magazine one called 
famous men of the Negro race and one called famous women. And Frederick Douglass is the second man that is featured. William Wells Brown is the third. The Coloured American magazine has actually been digitised, so I will link to Hopkins's page on there and this series in particular in the show notes. Interesting. Yeah, I just, I was going to say, I think it's really, these moments are really important that like looking back, um, I don't know, we, we, we talk about the importance and the intellectual contribution and the cultural contribution of figures like Frederick Douglass, but we don't get to talk about, or like, I don't see a lot in the public sphere of discussion about just sort of the aesthetic experience or like that's, you know, like, yeah. It seems here like she's she's casting him as an artist, like even kind of a sound artist, right? And like that's so important too, like to recognize that he's not just this important kind of talking head. He's not just a great, right? Like, yeah, yeah. He's not just like a great writer. He's also a great orator. And the way that he says it is really adding to her experience of what he's saying. Yeah. Which is, like you say, it's something that we get removed from when we're just reading about these things in books. That's really cool. Yeah. But I don't know when that, this this account just said at some point in the 1870s, and I assume, I think she wrote this book when she was in her 40s, and she must have just said something along the lines of, when I was a child. I mean, maybe you'd be able to, like, look into his speaking tour of when he was in Boston to figure it out. Yeah. But, um, so we're not... We're not sure when exactly that was, just at some point in her childhood. At 16, she began her dramatic career. Um, She debuted with a Boston choral group called the Progressive Musical Union, and that was an organisation of black musicians, which actually gave its first public concert at the North Russell Street Methodist Church on March 9th, 1875. Um, um, Hopkins was later chosen to star in a performance of Pauline or the Belle of Saratoga, I was really interested about that in that, um, but I really struggled to find more information about it. It was a an operetta written by Hart Pease Danks, which I I'm just obsessed with that <laughs> name. Just phonically, it's <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. That's a cool name. <laughs> yeah, I would love some, you know, um, Neo Victorian fiction written about Hart Pease Danks. I think <laughs> that would be cool. And just the coincidence of it being called Pauline. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Progressive Musical Union's founder, Elijah William Smith Jr., was seen, according to Brown, he was seen as Boston's African-American poet laureate. And he was also her mother's cousin. So her connection to the union linked her publicly to her poor ancestors, ancestors, which is a little detail that I was just adding, again, because of how many of the key figures in Boston she's associated with. Like, not just going to see Douglas, but she's... No, I was just reading this and thinking, like, if you had this... That's really cool. I mean, it almost made me think of, like, a... Maybe this is a bit, like, trite. But it seemed like the 19th century answer to the Kennedys, like, the Pauls and the Northups are everywhere. And so important in the politics. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how did we forget such a family that's so... Maybe, Maybe they still... And if you're a listener in Boston, please let us know if these people are celebrated. I hope they are. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I just wonder, too, like, just having briefly talked about the sort of metrics of yeah. why we don't know about um, so many Black authors, I wonder if, like, I, I just wonder if this um, this sense of connection, this prominence of her family helped to, um, like, keep her sort of in the public attention a little bit longer. So that's why she's... Yeah, for sure, I think. Still remembered by some. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, yes, we're talking about, I mean, she is kind of a lesser known author, but like she didn't fall completely into obscurity. Like you Google her name. She's got a Wikipedia page, right? So like. She's got a society. She's. Yeah. Yeah. She's still known. Yeah. So. Yeah. I. I, Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) No, I was just going to say, I think you're right. I think those connections definitely do assist her in not being completely lost. Yeah. So in 1879, at the age of 20, she completed writing her first play, Slaves Escape, or The Underground Railroad, which was later performed in a stage production and renamed Peculiar Sam, or The Underground Railroad. I like that. Peculiar Sam. Um, I think, sorry, this is again with my note-taking. So I think this is the first play that she had staged, but it's not the first one she wrote. That would make sense. Yeah. Like, I think authors commonly talk about, like, their first book, not as the first one they ever wrote, but but their first published one. And so I think, yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. Um, In the same year, she created the Hopkins Colored Troubadours with her family. And they toured around the country performing musical dramas, including some Hopkins wrote. Um, I don't know. I feel like they called it that, and I should probably not bleep out that term, but what do you think? It's, it is tricky, and I was, you know, when you're writing this down, you're like, what, what do you say? But you have to use the terms that they use to describe themselves, right? And as long as it's yeah. clear that you're doing that rather than using this these words yourself... Yeah. I don't know. Because you can't just retroactively go back and change the name on their behalf. Yeah. So. I guess we'll leave it. It's definitely a tricky consideration. Yeah. I mean, I think also it's like, as much as we can understand intent, right? It's not like we're quoting the racists using the terms, so. Yeah. Yeah. And following her theatrical debut, Hopkins threw herself into writing and made several applications to the federal copyright office um, in Washington, D.C., for those of you who don't know. Uh, The first of these was made when she was 18, an indication that, one, that she was writing before that first play was staged, but two, that she was taking this very seriously. It was a career for her, not She's not just, like, writing anonymous things and putting them in the newspaper or whatever. Also, she finished them. Yeah. (laughs) As someone who started writing a lot of things when I was around that age and has never, to this day, finished anything other than academic writing, I find very impressive. It's a big deal. Yeah. The copyright declaration for her play, Aristocracy, gives her name as P.E. Hopkins for the first time. So before this, she was writing as Alan. Just to re yeah. yeah, just to restate that. Her play Slaves Escape opened at Oakland Garden in Boston in 1880, uh, and she was 21 at the time. 
Yeah, so there's kind of a period of time where less is less is either known or easily accessible. Um, this this is the part where I was trying to read, and I was like, if I could go to the library at work, this would be so much easier. But I have to rely on what I can find on yeah. Google Books and JSTOR. So apologies for that. It's the reality of trying to do yeah. this under pandemic conditions. Um, but that leaves us with a gap of about 12 years. So um, maybe we'll find out and post about it somewhere else, about what she did during that time. But what we do know is that Hopkins started working as a stenographer for the Bureau of Statistics for the Massachusetts Decennial Census and also worked as a personal stenographer for members of the Republican Party from 1892 to 1899. And I kind of wanted to take the time here, especially given, you know, the weeks slash months we're in, um, to point out that political parties in the US have developed a lot over the course of their existence, and the Republican Party of the 1890s is very different from the modern Republican Party. You know, she's not working for... No. The 1890s version of Trump or Reagan. Like, Lincoln was a Republican president. Yeah. Yeah, so while she's she's working as a stenographer to pay the bills, um, while she's pursuing what seems to be her actual passion, which is um, working as an orator and giving speeches, um, possibly inspired by that Frederick Douglass talk that she went to. And she was really active in Boston's women clubs and other civic groups. So she represented the Women's Era Club at the annual convention of New England Federation of Women's Clubs. I don't have the year for that, but that yeah. seems very impressive. Um, and I'll just note that um, giving speeches was a really um, common thing for writers to do. It, it paid pretty well for the most part. Like, mm. um, yeah, you just go on a speaking tour and you would just give like Emerson at around this time, you know, the famous transcendentalist author gave a lot of speeches, too. Um, it was like a good way to pay the bills. I think it probably paid more than writing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's a good way to pay the bills and also to just get your name out there. So, yeah. like you say, it's a really yeah. common thing that a lot of people are like. It's, Francis Wright was going around doing mm-hmm. it in the 1830s. Um, Dickens obviously does all of his um, speaking <laughs> yeah. tours around the America, around the Americas. I think just the USA, possibly Canada. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like as a writer, like authors are celebrities. Um, they're also thought leaders like and so it's kind of this really important duty that you have but also yeah it's it's a good way to make some money too (laughs) and get promotion and like learn about your audience more be in touch with the issues that yeah it's like so from 1900 until 1904 Hopkins served as writer and editor-in-chief for Colored American Magazine. Also in 1900, her first novel, Contending Forces, was published. In um, 1901, she became a founding member of the Boston Literary and Historical Association. Yeah, and then in, in 1904, her time with the Colored American Magazine ends um, because an ally of Booker T. Washington's, who disliked her editorial perspectives and quote, unconciliatory politics, basically bought the magazine and then fired her. She's a victim to new management. Um, And she did continue to write and served as editor of the New Era magazine in 1916, 
but her literary productivity declined sharply after 1905. Um, and from all accounts, she was still working as a stenographer at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology at the time of her death in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1930. Yes, so she died on the 13th of August. So we're going to talk a little bit about her writing. Um, is, disclaimer is that I did not have a lot of time to do research because I was interviewing for getting a job and then <laughs> moving all in the space of a month. Um, and, and also because there's not always a lot of written record left of how an author worked. Um, however, yeah. the Pauline Hopkins Society has this um, section of their website dedicated to her writing called Inspired Borrowings, um, in which they talk about um, what has become sort of a, not a scandal exactly, um, but a sore spot in histories of Pauline Hopkins' work, which is that she participated in what one author has called, quote, extensive intertextuality, end quote. I love that um, way of saying that. Basically, <laughs> yeah, uh, less generous people would call it plagiarism. However, I do want to say that um, in the 19th century, a lot of borrowing happened, um, Mary Elizabeth Braddon, who we also covered, was also accused of plagiarism for doing adaptations, basically. Um, and I think in the 19th century, the line between fan fiction and original work was much blurrier than it is today. Um, we've talked about in our mini-series on adaptation the way that you would sort of borrow other people's work or worlds, um, be it from mythology or folklore or um sort of referencing a contemporary art right so um apparently pauline hopkins like many many of her peers uh did this quite a lot um i'm saying this so carefully because i don't i don't want to be one of the voices that calls this plagiarism. I think that there is a way that you can really borrow the form and content of other works and adapt them to a different purpose. Especially like I think when you're work when you're a black artist working with white culture. There's like satire does this, parody does this, but I think that happens in other contexts too. And I haven't read enough of her work to really say one way or another. But I just want to kind of keep that in the forefront rather than sort of sit. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, um, I don't know, because it, the, the, what do the, what does this person call it? Extensive intertextuality. I mean, they are, I'm just looking at this project now, which is really interesting, but they're for the most part quite small snippets, aren't they? And I can't help thinking sometimes, yeah. sometimes you read something and you don't realize that it's yeah. lodged in your head, but it has. And then you write it down and think you've come up with it yourself and you're like, oh, that's brilliant. I did this to myself a lot in terms of like, I would write a sentence for a paper and it would be like really great. And then like, it's a huge paper in grad school, right? Like, and so like five paragraphs later, I would basically write the same exact thing, not realizing that I had said it, like, and the words would be kind of barely tweaked, right? And so like, if you can do that to yourself with something that you wrote, like, yes, <laughs> that you should be like extremely familiar with, right? It happens. 
Um, I think like the big qualm is that she doesn't actually cite these things. But if you're a writer, you're reading really widely anyway. Well, and also citation is an academic practice. You don't usually find it in fiction unless you're like David Foster Wallace. Yeah. Yeah. And even though, like, yeah, like, sometimes you, like, read a paragraph and you're like, okay, how do I say this? I'm going to read some similar things and maybe model it, right? Like, she's not word-for-word copying things. It's just that there are some really striking similarities occasionally. Um, Yeah, and some, a a number of scholars have kind of created these side-by-side charts on the Pauline Hopkins Society website. They're really interesting to look at. Yeah. Yeah, they are really interesting, isn't it? So I don't, what, what I think, as a writer, what, what I take away from this, what I learned about her writing from this sort of oblique instance is that she is um, thinking a lot about form and kind of borrowing form and playing playing within the context of that. Like a poet would do that, right? Like you would do the exact same sort of paragraph structure and then play around with what's inside I, I kind of see that happening a little bit. And I also think, yeah, there's like a little bit of adaptation work in her writing and style and a little bit of maybe even illusion, fan fiction sort of things. But yeah, I think uh, like you said, these are small, small pieces. I'm not saying like the whole extent of her work is basically, yeah, that I would not want to go that far. And it's also um, like, was, was Hagar's Daughter first published as a periodical? Because it's a really common thing. Oh, she borrowed from Corelli. Yeah, so it was serial published, and it's a really common thing at this time for, um, like, most, the majority of people writing for periodicals will write as they go, and they'll be reading other things the whole time they're writing, and it's this mm-hmm. quite common to bounce off other things that are printed in the same periodical, bounce off things that you're reading in different periodicals, like, it's a much more yeah, kind of unofficially collaborative process, shall I say. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I would add to that point. Yeah, I think there's something about periodicals, like newspaper novels, that sort of thing, that really um, invites those correlations. And it's almost like if your work isn't doing that, it's failing in the format of the periodical. Yeah. Like, but I think also I would just say, like, just scrolling through the list of authors she references, she was extremely wide re- well-read. Um, you know, Kipling, uh, Corelli, uh, Bulwer-Lytton, <laughs> enemy of our podcast. Um, yeah, just to be able to make this range of citation um, or a reference or allusion, like, you have to be reading so much like i'm just looking at this page and it's got like at least 30 maybe more references and that's just for like one novel's breakdown yeah i don't know so yeah so that's that's what we know about her writing process um i wasn't yeah i wasn't able to find really any more like i don't have the level of detail of say um Francis Milton Trollope who wrote at a given time every day or Corelli who wrote at a given time every day but and I think partly yeah, that, I think that does give us a good yeah sorry no I was gonna say partly because the it's really easy to create kind of like a mythology around someone like Francis Milton Trollope or Corelli who writes at the same time every day and also yeah 
who has a biographer who will make a point of emphasizing that whereas someone who writes yeah. you know someone who's also having to work full time and writing in the bits and pieces of downtime she can get it's harder to create kind of a mythology around that yeah and i would also like she yeah she might not even remember because if you asked me when i wrote my dissertation or my thesis i'd be like well whenever i had a spare minute whereas someone who was like oh sat down from nine to six every monday to friday that's easy to remember yeah i did five to seven a.m most days for the last year um because that was the only time i had not because i wanted to do that <laughs> wow. yeah but i would also kind of going back to our um, delaney episode to say you know like the the, the thing about uh, biographies of black figures in the united states is that the the unfair thing is that they have so much weight on them like there are so many biographies of white people that like you don't have to be this sort of exemplary figure political revolutionary with huge cultural gravitas to um like that that's not required of every biography. You can just be this calm kind of quiet person and have like the sort of domestic small details. But for black Americans, like, like was brought up in our Delaney episode, there is this huge sense of responsibility and urgency around the political context of historical black life in the United States that like, that's what the biographies end up focusing on to the exclusion of sort of smaller domestic details. Um, if those details exist at all to be documented. Yeah, and there's also so many politics involved in who becomes the subject of a biography, and the more visible you are in, you know, everyday life, the more the more easily you can become a subject of a biography, or the more easily someone can produce a biography about you and market it. So even for yeah, for any figure who's removed from that, you know, paradigm of like a great white wealthy man able-bodied man it becomes that much harder to produce a biography about the personal market a biography yeah so on that <laughs> depressing note I, I think that uh that concludes our coverage of the life of pauline hopkins yeah i mean on a slight on a slight um slightly brighter note loris brand's biography is really good and i would really encourage anyone to read that i mean i didn't have a ton of time when researching this because of some personal things that were going on but so I dipped in and out of it but I really wish and um, when I get the time I will read it in full because it was really interesting really convincingly but yes that that sounds awesome and if the pandemic allows um there are a couple of letters that Pauline Hopkins wrote at the Dartmouth Special Collections so we might come back with a special mini episode uh, to talk about those, but I can't make any promises because it's 2020. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for listening. Next month, we'll be back with an episode on the life of Chinese poet Gu Taiking. Yes, I'm excited to try and learn more about poetry. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Have a safe Halloween. Well, you have to because you can't leave the house. <sighs> Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. 
The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. George J. for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.